think in Shakespeare, that's brought so much more to the forefront because we're dealing with actual people's lives and the words they speak are determining the outcome of their existence. And I think if we thought of our poems on that level of like intensity and importance, that it's like these words are dictating where this existence is going to end up. You know what I mean? It won't. It's not just a pretty thing that you say or a clever thing that you say to get published in some magazine. What is at stake for King Richard? His life, his being, his existence. And what he says slash what he thinks directly affect how his life will end up. What would happen if we, when we're writing a poem, convinced ourselves that the way my life will go in the future depends on what I say in this poem? I am creating who I am as a person right now because of the decisions I'm making on the level of the line in this poem. I mean, it's kind of slightly counterintuitive, but I think probably true. Hi, everyone. In today's class, you'll hear a discussion between me and Ben about a few Shakespeare soliloquies. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just-for-fun writing prompt that will help you channel Shakespeare's music. The quote of the day is actually two quotes of the day. The first is by the Shakespeare scholar Stephen Greenblatt. It's a quote I found, I think, in Greenblatt's biography of Shakespeare, and it's stuck with me ever since. It's simply Greenblatt's description of blank verse, the form that Shakespeare writes in mostly. Greenblatt says that blank verse is, quote, the dream of what human speech would sound like if humans were something greater than they are, which I absolutely adore. One of the primary pleasures that Shakespeare offers me is this wonderful, slightly paradoxical combination of speech that sounds so recognizably human, and yet is, as Greenblatt says, elevated in some way. This is what humans would sound like if they were a little bit better than what they currently are. It's imbued with a little bit more magic, a little bit more beauty, a little bit more order, but not so much that we don't recognize it as ourselves. In other words, Shakespeare reflects back to us a version of ourselves as who we could be, versions of ourselves that we could aspire to be, that we could envision ourselves one day becoming. I think it's very beautiful. The second quote of the day I referred to in the previous podcast in which I did a close reading of the Hamlet soliloquy. It's by Samuel Johnson, who says in his preface to Shakespeare that Shakespeare is to be praised because he gives us, quote, human sentiments in human language. It's a very simple thing to say. The eye could almost pass right over it and not stop. It doesn't sound, on first pass, very remarkable, like a very remarkable observation. But I think it's one of those things that's so obvious that maybe we can't see it. What does great literature give us? Human sentiments, human ideas, human feelings. It has to appeal to our humanity. It can't get so abstracted or cerebral that we don't recognize ourselves in it, that we don't recognize the human creature. How does it feel to be a human? This is what all great literature has to in some way address. This is what Shakespeare gives us, and he gives it to us in human language. As Greenblatt says, perhaps this language is slightly elevated, but it's colloquial enough to recognize ourselves in. And for more human sentiments in human language, let's go into my chat with Ben. 
Hello, Ben. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Uh, Shakespeare. So my email, I mean, you've heard these recordings. I don't really, I, I kind of want them to be free form. We can mm-hmm. go, we can go wherever you want. We can talk about big things or small things. I thought some scaffolding of organization to, for this conversation would be for me to choose two and you to choose two. I was just rereading this packet though in preparation for this conversation and it's so hard not to want to talk about all of them. I know. That's because how... they're so good. They're so good. And they're so different from each other because every character is so unique and different that it's like, it's like choosing your favorite human. It's I know. just like, what the heck? Yeah, it's crazy. It's very shocking to realize that these, the, all of these different voices came out of one mind. Yeah. I mean, unless you buy into <laughs> so... weird conspiracy theories. So it might be good if we strayed a little bit from the four that we've chosen <laughs> and talked about. A natural question might be, why aren't we reading Shakespeare poems? Like, why aren't we reading the sonnets? And I just, and I love sonnets, but I just think, except for a few sonnets like 18 or 73, lots of the sonnets get a little bit too clotted and a little bit too cerebral and a little bit too complicated. That's just, the, I'll just say it plainly, a little bit too complicated. And I, I think the soliloquies, the plays are 10 times better. So for example, I just have the first page of the packet open to me. And I'm looking at Shylock's famous speech, and it's just so clear and so modern. I mean, so little of this has aged. You know, almost none of this has aged. He's writing 400 years ago in an English that is almost virtually identical to our own English. So I don't want to get bogged down in Shylock, but just I think it's a good illustration of what I mean. So Salarino says, why I am sure if he forfeit, thou wilt not take his flesh. What's that good for? You know, they have this bargain. People have read this play. Uh, if this man doesn't repay Shylock, he gets to take a pound of flesh. And th- this person says, you're not going to actually take the flesh. What do you need flesh for? Shylock says, to bait fish withal. If it will feed nothing else, it will feed my revenge. He hath disgraced me and hindered me half a million, laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, cooled my friends, heeded mine enemies. And what's his reason? I am a Jew. Hath not a Jew eyes, hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions, fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? Etc. Etc. I mean, and I didn't really even get to the climax. The point is just that Shakespeare invented the English in which we still speak. Yeah. You know what I mean? To, to a large degree. And that is on full display in these soliloquies. Something that came to mind reading, hearing you read that was how Shakespeare uses listing. And I think that's one of the things that... So any conversation I've had about Shakespeare and why he's so good only has to do with how he develops characters and like stuff like that. I've never only thought about uh. it in terms of like poetry and language. Yeah, so yeah, this yeah. was so fun. And this is one of the things that I think crosses both sides where um, on the acting side, to have a list like this, that's how people talk. They'll be, they talk in lists and they'll realize new, more important things the more they talk. So that by the end, like, for example, this one where he says, hands, organs, dementias, senses, offenses, passions, so that it's like building and building 
as he's realizing. And that's something I think Shakespeare does crazy awesome yeah. is the making discoveries, right? Like you can see every single line of logic in an interesting way. It's never like boring or tedious or whatever. You know this what I mean? Formally speaking, the listing creates this crescendo, climactic, mm -hmm. compounding momentum, mm -hmm. musical momentum. So for anyone interested in writing, composing poetry with this kind of power, yeah. lists can help you get there for sure. Also anaphora, anaphora is a type of listing. Anaphora, is, as you know, I'm sure you know, uh, the beginning of successive sentences or phrases or clauses yeah. with the same word. If you, do we not? If you, do we not? If you, do we not? These, you know, when used wisely and strategically can create this, I don't know how else to phrase it. Yeah, rhythm, crescendo, power, accretion of mu musical power. You know, I've read a few biographies of Shakespeare and they're very illuminating for several reasons. One of them is because I never really realized before reading these how determined his art form, how determined the plays are by the constraints of the theater. Yeah. You know, the, the form of the play, but also who would what was allowed to be staged, what wasn't, what actors they had in their company and what those actors were capable of doing and what they weren't mm -hmm. capable of doing. And as soon as certain actors left, the plays changed because they didn't have a character that could do certain things anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is an illuminating observation to say that he's writing these knowing that they need to be memorized and recited. Yeah, He's not writing these thinking that they will be printed and read. So he wants to make sure that they're memorizable and recitable and this listing is certainly a product of that it's a kind of artifact yeah. of the form another thing you say so great is that you can see the person thinking in the monologues mm -hmm. let's because i think the lear speech that i want to talk about is a really great example of this act two scene four of king lear and to give some context remember this is uh goneril and reagan are bartering him down. He, he he brings his retinue of knights to their castles and they give him this very inhospitable welcome. His daughters give him his, this very inhospitable welcome. If you have too many knights, they're too loud. We, we don't want to host them all. Do you really need 50? Do you really need 20? And then, you know, one of the daughters says, what need ye one? And this is Lear's reply. Oh, reason not the need. Our basest beggars are in the poorest things superfluous. I've always loved it's this kind of moral argument. I'll try to say this quickly because I don't want I don't want these to turn into I don't want my reactions to these to turn into boring monologues in their own. But <laughs> I remember this job I had. I one of my first jobs I, I worked at Subway, and um, there was this man. I worked you know kind of late shift. I think they closed at like eleven or midnight. There was this man. We worked. At, I lived in a small town. There's this man who always came in and. Whatever money he had was clearly the result of panhandling because it was always like wadded up bills or pennies and nickels and dimes he would have in these weird cups or bags. He'd be slightly intoxicated, but he would always have this vest on that was covered in buttons. He had this like enormous button collection. And he, I would, I would, so he would like order his sandwich and then eat. And then I would sometimes see him like take a button off and like polish it and like scrub like with a napkin and like clean these buttons with water, you know, and then put it back on. He's very clearly proud of these buttons. And, you know, over the weeks that he'd come in, I, I would see like more added to his collection. And, you know, when I discovered King Lear, this is the person I thought of. Even the basest beggars in our society need 
to have their collection of useless things. You know, he, what need does a person have of buttons? Well, none. But it's like it kept his humanity alive in some way. At least he had something that he could say was superfluous. You know, if all you have is food, shelter, clothing, then you feel poor. You need to add a little bit of useless beauty to feel like a human. You know what I mean? Anyway, uh, our basest beggars are in the poorest things superfluous. Allow not nature more than nature needs. Man's life is cheap as beasts. You know, what makes you a human? Well, a, a bear doesn't have a button collection, so it, it separates you from the beast. Anyway, so then Lear talks to his daughter. He kind of looks at his daughter. Thou art a lady. This is what this is partly corroborating your point. What is around him is feeding his thought. So he's on the stage with a lady. You, thou art a lady. If only to go warm were gorgeous, which must mean if the only point of getting dressed was to, you know, to keep your body warm, then the fashion, making beautiful fashion wouldn't matter. If only to go warm were gorgeous, why nature needs not what thou gorgeous wearest, which scarcely keeps thee warm. You know, you're wearing this beautiful dress. Well, why is it beautiful? But for true need, you heavens, give me that patience, patience I need. You see me here, you gods, a poor old man, as full of grief as age, wretched in both. If it be you, he's talking now to gods, if it be you that stirs these daughters' hearts against their father, fool me not so much to bear it tamely. Touch me with noble anger, and let not women's weapons, water drops, stain my man's cheeks. Know you unnatural hags. And this is the part that corroborates your point about you can tell that his mind is evolving as he's talking. The talking leads to thinking, and the thinking changes the subsequent talking. So Lear says, No, you unnatural hags, I will have such revenges on you both that all the world shall. I will do such things. What they are yet, I know not, but they shall be the terrors of the earth. It's like, this is like one of my favorite bits of Shakespeare, because it's like, he's this poor old man, semi, you know, senile. He wants to deliver this verbal blow. He wants to say, I'm going to do, and then his mind, you can tell, kind of like, he can't think it. He can't get there. He falters. All the world shall... It's like stumble, stumble. I will do such things. It's like, I can't think of it, but I don't know what they are, but man, they're going to be bad. <laughs> so it's this like mental interruption that's built into the soliloquy that, that helps to characterize Lear as this really sympathetic person who can't get as angry as he wants. You know, I just love that as a moment. So just, you know, to finish the soliloquy, but they shall be the terrors of the earth. You think I'll weep. No, I'll not weep. I'll have full cause of weeping, but this heart shall break into a hundred thousand flaws or ere I'll weep. Oh fool, I shall go mad. So even at the end of this kind of like harangue, he's like, oh, I, I'm losing my mind. The thinking is part of the poem. I'm calling it a poem. It's not, the poem isn't the result of a final conclusive process of thought. Benjamin. Mm -hmm. Please say something to keep to take the mic away from me. Yes, I think that you end up somewhere you did not expect to yeah. go. And this is such a cool example of that because you start with oh reason and you end I shall go mad. And it's like he thinks he's starting out like 
I'm going to talk this through logically so that you understand what I'm saying. And then at the end, he's like, I am losing my mind. I don't know what to do. You know, <laughs> just like such a huge transition. And you see every single step wow. from there to there. I just you know, it. I'd never noticed that before. I've read Lear, you know, m- not many, many times, but a bunch of times. I never saw that in this soliloquy. Oh, reason. And then I shall go mad. Wow. It's like this wonderfully encapsulated process of. Uh, going insane yeah and and i think it's cool too because that all the world shall i will do such things that little like interrupting himself like he can't think i think that starts to happen clear up when he's trying to talk to his daughter about like he gets kind of distracted by her clothes you know yeah like and he realizes like you're not even being kept warm you're not even like modest yeah And, and then he says but for true need and it's like, he's going to keep saying like, no, but let me just talk, going back to talking about true need. Then he's like, ah, you haven't, give me patience. I'm, I'm freaking out. You know? Yeah, that's so right. And then that gets clear into this whole other prayer, which then just makes him get so impassioned and like enraged. Yeah. <laughs> it's just amazing. So don't be, I, th- I think this was, I mean, this came up when we were reading Keats, you know, to a nightingale for, I think in particular is embedded with a version of this where the speaker of that poem is asking questions he doesn't know the answer to and is kind of vacillating back and forth. Whatever Keats learned about that, he learned from Shakespeare because Shakespeare does it even better. It's much more violent and it's much more condensed. And it happens three or four times in one soliloquy and the extremes are more extreme. Yeah. Okay. Should we do one of yours now? Which one should we go to first, Richard or uh, Prospero? Um, well, I think Richard could be part of the same conversation we're having and Prospero would be kind of a shift to a new topic probably. Okay. So which let's, do you think would be? Let's go first? to Richard. Should it all be read out loud first without yeah, interruption? Maybe, read, maybe reading the whole thing and then talking about it. Do you want to read it? Sure. Well, wait. Um, so he is Richard. King Richard is, um, has been rebelled against and he's sitting in jail, Right. And uh, Bolingbroke, it is, I think, right? The rebel uh, mm-hmm. who has, quote-unquote, usurped the crown. Um, and Richard is in jail. And for the first time in his life, Benjamin, you probably remember this more than me. It's been a few years since I've read this. King Richard II, for the first time in his life, has had to come to terms with the fact that he is not a, a demigod. Yeah. He's a man. And that yeah. the crown that he's worn all his life, it doesn't really bestow magic in any particular way right am i getting this context right yeah and i don't think he's in jail yet though i think they just got back from their um trip over to where did they go france but Uh, he has been captured i don't think so i think this is before he even i'm only remembering this from the movie version so they might have some stuff (laughs) but he must see the end coming yeah, so he just got back from his little thing and his friends are trying to tell him like, hey, it's going to be okay. Like we have people that could come fight with oh, us. Everything's yeah, going to be okay. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, no, it's not going to be okay. Like somebody rebelled against me. That's not supposed to be like allowed under God for people to do this. You know what I mean? It's funny you mentioned so, the movie version. Are you talking about the hollow crown Ben Wynch? Yes. Yeah, it's really yes. good. I love it. It's that. really, really good. And he's on a beach. Yes, and that's when he, why when I was, he recites this. But maybe yeah. in the actual original thing, he was already in jail. But I just am picturing him on the beach. Saying, no, you're right. I think what's happening here is that he sees his hold on power slipping away. Okay, take it away. Have you seen the Anthony Hopkins King Lear that they put on Amazon Prime? It is so unbearably that good. Is 
so amazing. Um, yeah, we don't have time for this either, but um, uh, I thought, I, I mean, Ian McKellen, I thought was great as King Lear. Mm-hmm. I'm teaching King Lear in the winter. I'm taking that from you. Oh, no way. 295? Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. that's going to be great. I'm, I yeah, can't, I can't wait. wait. I've taught that class a bunch of times, but I've always used Hamlet. And this time I thought, no, I want to do King Lear. So I spent a lot of the summer rereading King Lear and watching lots of productions. I wasn't shocked how much I loved the Anthony Hopkins version. How could he not be great? Yeah. I just, he made Ian McKellen seem, <laughs> I, I don't know. He just like, Ian, I, I, maybe I watched it. I watched Ian McKellen after the Hopkins and I could always tell that Ian McKellen was acting. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? He's yeah, a great totally. actor. Yeah. I said, oh, he's an actor in a play. Man, you watch that Anthony Hopkins one. He's like, he is Lear. He gets so uh, he is Lear. Yeah. So we're gonna be watching. It's not gonna be the same because we're not gonna be all in the same room. No, but we will be watching. I have to restrain myself in two ninety five. Like I kind of just want to watch all of that movie. Watching if if not all of it, lots of it. Anyway, yeah. Okay. So uh, please read uh, the soliloquy. No matter where of comfort, no man speak. Let's talk of graves, of worms, of epitaphs. Make dust our paper and with rainy eyes write sorrow on the bosom of the earth. Let's choose executors and talk of wills. And yet not so. For what can we bequeath save our deposed bodies to the ground? Our lands, our lives, and all our bowling brokes. And nothing can we call our own but death. And that small model of the barren earth which serves as pace to cover our bones. For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings, how some have been deposed, some slain in war, some haunted by the ghosts they have deposed, some poisoned by their wives, some sleeping killed, all murdered. For within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death his court, and there the antic sits, scoffing his state and grinning at his pomp, allowing him a breath, a little scene to monarchize, be feared and kill with looks, infusing him with self and vain conceit, as if this flesh which walls about our life were brass impregnable, and humored thus, comes at the last and with a little pin bores through his castle walls, and farewell, king, cover your heads and mock not flesh and blood with solemn reverence, throw away respect, tradition, form, and ceremonious duty, for you have all but mistook me all this while. I live with bread like you, feel want, taste, grief, need, friends. Subjected thus, how can you say to me, I am a king? Yeah, so great. It's just, as a, I mean, I, like I said, I want you to do most of the talking, but just as a chunk of metrical language, it's so magically composed. But mm-hmm. why, so I asked you, you know, I gave you a packet of like 23 pages of Shakespeare soliloquies from all sorts of different plays. And this was one that you singled out that you really wanted to talk about. So what is it that strikes you so, so much about it? And again, this was so interesting because the reason I love this is just because Richard II is one of my favorite characters. But taking this alone was so cool because it because this is something crazy too. Okay, this may take a while to get out of my brain. That's great. We do have time because i I had never I never would have expected that you could under that you could like understand why Richard II or like why Hamlet or why King Lear is so incredibly written by just like looking at one of their soliloquies or monologues but it's amazing how every time a human speaks in shakespeare he gives you an entire piece of everything going on with them you know so that like you really can take this alone and recognize like 
a lot of the character traits of Richard that make me love him, but also recognize so many aspects of Shakespeare's ability to write that makes him so amazing. For example, here, one of the things I love about Richard is such an interesting character because he he has like these two competing Im- like images of himself. On one side, he sees himself as literally God on earth. And he's like, I have all the power just because of who I am, the blood inside of me. So I am power. But now he's realizing like death has power over me. So I can't be God. God can't be just killed for no reason. Every sing- And then it's so crazy how he's realizing not only me, but every single king. Like, how could I have missed this? Every single king has been killed. None of them have even like, lived out the natural term of life. Yeah. So how could I have thought we were this other species of power? Well, no. And again, we have a little mini list, right? <laughs> Let mm-hmm. us tell sad stories of the death of kings. Some have been deposed, some slain in war, some haunted by the ghosts they have deposed, some poisoned by their wives, some sleep and killed, all murdered. Love that bit, right? So metrically, not metrically, uh, rhetorically, another anaphora, another use of anaphora that is snapped shut like a tight little box with this summary, all murdered. Two little words, you know, that sums it all up. It's this wonderful kind of, I don't know if you were to talk about this in musical terms, it's this wonderful crescendo and then you hear the cymbals, you know, at the very end or the drum, the the timpanis or something like all murdered, boom, you know, end of realization. Yeah. So I just love how even rhetorically that realization is, is um, so subtly musical. Mm -hmm. Anyway, keep going. Okay. Speaking in musical terms, I guess Shakespeare never. So one of the, the things that people have probably heard if they were in like band or orchestra or whatever, is that if you're just maintain or choir, if you're just like holding the same note, it has to either be getting louder or softer or it gets yeah, boring. Yeah, because it's could be mean because it's too death yeah, by boring. Because you want to keep action, like right. you know, and 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 I think Shakespeare does that so well. I think the lists I, I didn't plan to have that be like what. I focus on so much, but but I think these lists that he does act that way. That even in his lines, these tiny micro lists that he does, yes, give such a huge like sense of forward action, of graves, of worms, of epitaphs, and then yeah, I taste grief, need friends. He, he just like does all these little tiny builds up to things, which works so well, like you said, to either lead up to like a symbol crash at some point. Or like what Lear does to lead up to just like complete silence and halting. Or like at the end of this where he says, need friends. And then it kind of fades in like an ah man, kind of like an act at the end where he's like subjected thus, how can you say to me I am? Yeah. And I think it is so musical the way he uses those lists to build some kind of energy and then to either, and then the way he resolves that or doesn't. Yeah. So interesting. It's so I've I could steal and I have two things as a poet myself from a soliloquy like this. You say this is the first time in Richard's life where he's realized something to to understate it rather important, you know. <laughs> I am mortal. I think all poems so so you could ask yourself, maybe I'll zoom out a little bit more. Why in a poetry workshop are we reading such an old poet? How could he really teach us how to write lyric poems? Is this is it possible that even excerpts from plays 
out of context can teach us how to write lyric poems in 2020. Absolutely. You know, I unabashedly think, yes. How? Well, why is this chunk of writing so good? It's because it is the moment in Richard's life where everything before was one way and everything after is another way. It's a turning point. And I think to some degree, every lyric poem that lasts enacts this. Every lyric poem that lasts has to be about or reenact a similar moment. Now, it doesn't have to be on such a grand scale, like I'm a king about to be deposed. It can be, you know, a lyric poem that you write about a memory when you were, I don't know, I'm just like spitballing here, eight years old, riding a bike, you fall and hit your head and you think, oh, wait a minute, that could have been bad. And like in your eight-year-old vocabulary, you have this moment where you think, me too, I'm gonna, I'm frail too, you know? So every lyric poem I think needs to, needs to be a kind of bottled turning point where before that event that the lyric poem is about, things in the speaker's life were one way and after things were another way. As, you're, as I revise my poems, I ask myself, is this true? And when it's not, the poem is usually weak. And when I try to fix that, the poem usually gets better. So that's one thing that Shakespeare constantly teaches me. Another is, as you say about the musical ending here, I have literally mimicked the structures of, I think, I mean, many soliloquies, but even the ending here, this wonderful way that he has of piling the stresses. I live with bread like you. So I bump, 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 bump. That's five stresses in a row. I live with bread like you. Feel want, two more stresses. Taste grief, two more stresses. Need friends, two more stresses. So the second to last line and the third to last line of this poem are almost all stressed syllables. Bump, 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 bump. And then just as you say, the last line is this kind of wonderful, fading, quiet, denouement-esque, how can you say to me I am a king, where it all comes out in one breath and the pent-up breath that we that we experience in kind of saying all of those stresses gets released in this kind of like, almost as if Richard is like, okay, breathing my last breath is king. And from now on, you know, I'm immortal mm-hmm. <laughs> like the rest of you. So beautiful. Where to now? I wanted to do Jailer's Daughter, which is a weird choice. I love that you um, chose that. That is a hilarious. I can go there. Maybe we should go there now because that would save Prospero for the end, which in a way would be fitting, I think. Yeah. 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 So this is from... <laughs> Totally underread, even I might say unread play, Two Noble Kinsmen. Yeah. You know, as a play, it doesn't hold up in any way to, you know, the heights of, you know, Lear or Hamlet or uh, the high comedies um, or the histories. Um, But I've always loved the soliloquy of the jailer's daughter. I think the soliloquy of the jailer's daughter is, this is late Shakespeare. This soliloquy proves to me that Shakespeare has not lost it, has not lost his magic. Why do I love it? This is all you need to know for context. It's spoken by the jailer's daughter. And uh, Palamon, this man named Palamon, is imprisoned. You know, the jailer's daughter is watching you know, the prisoners and is in charge from time to time with keeping watch over them. And she's a teenage girl, this young girl. And um, I'll quickly list why I love it. It's such clear language. It's such conflicted language. I love, like in the Lear speech, how we see the speaker have one idea and then the opposite idea, almost in the same line. Shakespeare is so good at embodying human contradictions like this. And the presence of this contradiction makes this speaker, you know, I've never been, how old is this girl? I don't know. 
I've never been such a person, but she seems alive, totally alive to me, totally real and believable as a human because of this contradiction. So I love the contradiction. I love the clarity of language. I love the swooning, this unabashed, <laughs> hyper-emotional swoon. Yeah, what else is there to say? So now I'll read it. She's fallen in love with this prisoner. Why should I love this gentleman? Tis odds he never will affect me. I am base. My father, the mean keeper of this prison, and he a prince. To marry him is hopeless. To be his whore is witless. Out upon What pushes are we wenches driven to when 15, oh, I guess we know she's 15. When 15 once has found us. First I saw him. I, seeing, thought he was a goodly man. Can't help interrupting myself. Maybe I love it too, because it does such a great job describing the process of falling in love. I mean, we, we, this has all happened to us, and she kind of nails it, I think. This self-analysis, what is this thing that has happened to me, you know? First I saw him, I, seeing, thought he was a goodly man. He has as much to please a woman in him, if he pleased to bestow it so, as ever these eyes yet looked on. Next I pitied him, and so would any young wench of my conscience that ever dreamed or vowed her maidenhead to a young, handsome man. Then I loved him, extremely loved him, infinitely loved him. And yet he had a cousin, fair as he too. It's the best line ever. It's, like, it's so funny. I love this as much as anything in Lear, to be honest. You know, I just love it so much. The heights of love. I loved him. It's not enough to say I loved him. I loved him. I extremely loved him. Not even that's enough. I infinitely loved him. But it's not melodramatic or unbelievable or trite or sentimental because instantly she is totally human and says there was also this other guy <laughs> his yeah. cousin wasn't bad too so the whatever kind of like bad teenage poetry that could have crept into this poem you know my heart and soul forever it will only be you forever till i die no shakespeare is way too good for that instantly all of that is undercut and prevented by this totally human i don't disbelieve her when she says i infinitely loved him that's real but yet and yet and yet <laughs> He had a cousin, fair as he too. But then right back, no, 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 sorry to be disloyal for even one line. But in my heart was Palamon, and there, Lord, what a coil he keeps. How great is that word coil? You know, in my mind, I hear, I don't know, like a snake or I see a rope or something slightly not good. You know, that's what love is. What a coil he keeps. To hear him sing in an evening, what a heaven it is. And yet his songs are sad ones. Fairer spoken was never gentleman. When I come in to bring him water in a morning, first he bows his noble body, then salutes me thus, fair gentle maid. Good morrow, may thy goodness get thee a happy husband. Once he kissed me. I loved my lips the better ten days after. Would he would do so every day. He grieves much and me as much to see his misery. What should I do to make him know I love him? For I would fain enjoy him. Say I ventured to set him free. What says the law then? Thus much for law and, or kindred, I will do it. And this night or tomorrow he shall love me. 
I mean, how great is it? Once he kissed me, I loved my lips the better. <laughs> Somehow, 400 years ago, Shakespeare, this middle-aged man, knew what it was like to be a teenage girl f- for all time. And I'm not going to pretend to understand teenage girls. I'll have one in about eight years. Oh, this just rings so true to me. We, I, I felt that, you know? Uh, certain people that you love touch you and you think, oh, wow, I'm I'm special now. They've rubbed, rubbed their magic dust onto me. But also, I love this for I would fain enjoy him. I mean, this this unabashed, sensual, you know, I just want to enjoy him. Life is kind of to his quite mistress-esque. You know, I just want to enjoy him. What's wrong with just saying that? You know, it's just, I love that she just gets to say that. Mm-hmm. And this wonderful, I, I now I'm going on and on. Sorry, this is the last thing I'll say, but this wonderful self-delusion that this soliloquy ends in, she isn't wise and she doesn't have much life experience. And like most people in that position, she thinks that if she sets him free, all will be well in the world. This is what I'll do. And we'll run away together and it will be happy, happily ever after. And so this wonderful irony that this soliloquy ends on where she, she has this plan, it's going to work, but the reader knows this is just doomed to fail. So that self-delusion that humans are capable of too creeps into her. It's just, it's all here. You know, it's all here. And this isn't a throwaway, ignored little play that nobody reads. How remarkable. I don't know. This, ben, any thoughts? Yeah. Uh, this one too, kind of like the Lear one, just how clear the shift is from, why should I love this gentleman? Tis odds he never will affect me. And then she ends by saying, he shall love me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> she like... <laughs> talks herself up off of where she starts out trying so hard to just be in the real world, take things at face value. But then she talks herself up into this whole elated. And then she like dreams away. Yeah. Right yeah. At the end, you know, so that's it, 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 and you're right. It, it starts quite self-aware. I'm base. He's a prince. This is doomed. Mm-hmm. It ends in the solemn vow. No, 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 no. I will make this work no matter what this, this will work, you know? Mm-hmm. So wonderful. It's totally 180. And how do we get to this 180? This is a poetry lesson for us too. I mean, great poems, lyric poems, or, you know, if you're a writer of fiction, you're the process of your speaker in your poem, the process of thinking has to shift. The thought that the poem starts with have to, has to become a different thought mm-hmm. by the time the poem is over, um, or your character has to become a different character. And it's also interesting in this, how she, I mean, I guess that ending with he shall love me is almost a third move because first she says, why should I love him? But then I don't know if you lines up from the bottom when she says, what should I do to make him know I love him? And then, so it's like, she gets these little objectives and goals until the end when she's just like, he's going to love me. He's going to fall right, so right, right. with me, you know? And, and so that's just so human. And so just amazing that he like wrote all of those little shifts of thought you know this needs to be underscored it's so believable because it's so gradual mm-hmm. all i want is to see him first all i want is to see him because he's so handsome and then all I, all I want is to hear him sing and then once he kissed me and wow that was good can i have more of that and then it's like all i want is for him to know how i feel uh-huh bit by bit, small step by small step, it wouldn't be as persuasive or as human, like you very wisely say, if it started, oh, this is hopeless, uh, this, this isn't a match that will never work, and then instantly to, oh, I don't care, I will make it work. 
So we can embed the same thing into our own poems. Not all turns in all poems have to be 180. This is 180. He'll never love me too. He shall love me. Um, but if you are writing a poem in which the it ends in a way that's kind of the opposite from how it starts, yeah, this is a good technique to keep to keep in mind. Make sure that you're from the start of the poem. Don't wait till the end to kind of start the turn. You know, put in 20 mini turns along the way. Prospero. Well, Which yeah, I think the general idea that I love about this, and I think it it is something that you can see through so much of what Shakespeare does, is that he uses it, like you were saying before, he's so aware that he's writing for a specific end goal, which is the performance of the work by human bodies on a stage. Yeah. But it's so cool how you can see that he uses that not only to his advantage in creating these emotional things that he can imagine people saying, but also to allow the words and the, the poems to employ that medium as its own whole metaphor to further the argument that he's writing, you know? And he yeah. does that so often where he like pulls away the veil in front of the audience and just reminds them like, remember how this isn't real? Like, do you remember this? How really you're just <laughs> listening to people talking, saying words. It's like he's, he is writing for the theater, but he wants you so badly to just focus on the words he's writing, you know? And so he keeps reminding you to do that. And I just think that's really awesome. Maybe The Tempest is the most obvious. I mean, maybe Hamlet is the most obvious, but all those comedies where people are dressed up and pretending to be other people, wink, yeah. wink. or um, Well, and you have a monologue in here from All's Well That Ends Well, is it? Where she says, like, oh, must be... women shouldn't be giving the epilogue. Oh, it's, uh, yeah, um, uh, as you like it. As you like it. Yeah, so same yeah. thing, yeah. So she steps out of the costume and says, as an actor, I will now say. So that's a kind of direct, yeah, very yeah. direct. But even in the histories, you know, there are moments when Prince Hal puts on this toy crown and pretends to be king for a while. Mm -hmm. This is a great point that, and after we talk about this, maybe we could we could circle back and ask ourselves how this could translate into poetry on a page. Like, is this, could you say that he he's using the environment, he's using the rhetorical situation of being in a theater to inform how his lines are experienced. Yeah. And maybe or maybe not, that's something that we as writers on paper can do our own versions of. Love to hear your thoughts on that. But yeah, take us to this bit of Prospero. Okay. Our revels now are ended. These, our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. That's awesome. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve. And like this unsubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. That's awesome. It just makes me want to cry every time. It's so, so, so beautiful. But we have to like get specific. People listening are annoyed at our vague uh, swooning. So what makes this so beautiful? Well, this whole thing basically is a list. I mean, is hmm. a series of lists. And that's the other thing about Shakespeare too, is that he lists lists, you know? So like, <laughs> that's a great way of putting it. It's just awesome. Yeah. And so he's so aware of how, but I think the reason that is so effective is because that's how people talk, you know? 
that we'll always be like, oh yeah, and this, and then this. And then I was thinking about this. Like we never really start a sentence by just starting the sentence. We'll always be like, yeah, for sure. And also, right. you know, and then we start talking. And so people do. Uh, that's this, my new, that's my new favorite writing prompt. We should all list write li- a list of a list, <laughs> a list of lists. It's so great. It's very hard. No, I'm, I, I, over the summer and every, every, I don't know, 12 months, 18 months, I recommit myself to memorizing poems. It's very hard for me to memorize poems. It, it's, it's quite a painful thing. Some people take to it better than, way better than me. Most people take to it way better than me. But I feel like it improves my writing so much to have rhythms and lines embedded in my brain. Mm-hmm. Then when when I write, I don't know, it's just a form of, it's just one way, one of several ways to increase muscle memory as a writer. So I do think it's really important. So I recently, over the summer, recently, it's now November, back in like June, made a list of uh, poems I wanted to memorize. I guess you could say favorite poems, therefore, same type of thing. Not all poems are memorizable. Two Autumn was on there. U- Ulysses by Tennyson was on there. I really wanted to get ambitious, you know, no matter what their length. And this little bit of Prospero instantly went on this list. I just needed it to be a permanent part of me. And I'm a very bad teacher for several reasons. One of them is because it's hard for me to articulate. People are wondering what I'm talking about. It's so hard for me to articulate why I find certain bits of language beautiful. Why is this so beautiful? I don't quite know. Please answer this question. Yeah, well, just going back to the question, well, to the original subject that brought us to this, which is that using the medium as a metaphor. Yeah. A lot of my understanding of poetic theory or whatever is from the Sumilirica, just because we read that in one of Kim's classes in the last winter. So he talks in there about how the poem ends up becoming the world for for the voice within it. So the words that we write will exist eventually on a page in a poem, but the words that Shakespeare wrote existed on a stage in a theater and the theater was the globe, obviously. And so he uses that not only to point out the fact that like the words we're saying and we as actors, this is our whole world. Therefore we can use just this space to signify every single thing in the world. Do you know what I'm saying? And we can do, I think, the same thing if we become aware that the poem is the world. So we can move within that world in the same way. Yeah. Just the, the reason this I'm saying this is because he builds in this list, okay, from the towers to the palaces to the temples. So becoming almost like sacred more right. and then to the whole globe, which is just this little tiny theater that they're in, you know? But the globe itself, obviously also the whole world, becomes so sacred to him. <laughs> yes. This you know is what I'm saying? This is, this is very helpful. I want to respond to that in a way that will look like I'm zooming way out. You've helped me a great deal to articulate why this passage appeals to me so much. On my computer, on the plastic bit, the frame, yeah, I've taped certain um, quotes bits of writing that I want to constantly see, you know, in front of me. One of them, I I admit this is slightly tangential, is this wonderful bit by Yeats in a letter. Yeats in a letter says this. So I'm literally now reading off the plastic bits of my computer. 
Yeats says, do you suppose for one moment that Shakespeare educated Hamlet and King Lear by telling them what he thought and believed? As I see it, Hamlet and King Lear educated Shakespeare. And I have no doubt that in the process of that education, he found out that he was an altogether different man to what he thought himself and had altogether different beliefs, which is one of the best things I've ever read. I put it on my computer to constantly remind myself that it's my job to make sure that my poems teach me and not that I pretentiously assume the responsibility of teaching other people through my poems. Another thing I have taped right next to it is, and I got this from somewhere, I don't know, I was reading some essay or some critic, I put it onto my computer unattributed. Sorry, whoever gave me this idea. It's just a simple question that I want to think about when I write poems. And the question is, is it, meaning the poem that I'm working on at any given moment, is it a model of the world? Is it a model of the world? I think you can't say universally that all poems do X or Y. Poetry as an art form is constantly defying expectation or genre or rules. But I do think if you go through any great anthology and look at poems that have lasted, they present no matter what they're about, no matter what their style, no matter who's speaking, long or short, they find a way, if it's about a red wheelbarrow, if it's about a Trojan war, it doesn't really matter. They find a way to embed into the poem a kind of system to, to describe the world, a model of the world. The world, to me, is X. This is the world. This is what I think about the world, the place that we live. Is it a model of the world? I want my poems, this is aspirational, I have not necessarily achieved this. I want my poems to make implicit or explicit arguments about the place that we live, about human life. Why do I find this so beautiful? Probably one reason, as you say, is because it's an extremely explicit meta-theatrical analogy. It is one of the most beautiful models of the world that I've ever come across. It literally models a world, the theater, but in doing so, metaphorically models the cosmos, you know? People that we love die and turn into air, thin air. And yet, you were saying about the temples, their sacredness, you know? This is a beautiful place. So we look at the world and we see cloud-capped towers, we see gorgeous palaces, we see solemn temples. The globe is great. The great globe itself is great. It's a great place. But you can still say in the same breath, in the same soliloquy, that it's in some way baseless or ephemeral or fleeting. Our little life is rounded with a sleep. I think the list of reasons why I find this beautiful probably has a hundred items on it, but one of those items is certainly, it's so bitter and so sweet. And it's so honest about life coming to an end, but it's not nihilistic or depressing or angry. You know, it looks at the world that is defined by fragility and ephemerality and kind of blesses it. You know, I bless you world. This is a gorgeous place. Are there other reasons why this is so beautiful that we could articulate? Okay, two thoughts. One is from a previous poet that now I don't remember, but how Prospero says, our revels now are ended, and these are actors. And it's cool that that can be talking about them, like on yeah. the stage, our, but also how it can also just be everyone. Wasn't there another poet too, where we talked about how he would talk about himself, but also make it about all of us? Oh, well, Rilke uses we, that personal yeah. plural pronoun, but also Eliot in some ways will do this. And Dickinson 
in this short life that only lasts an hour, how much, how little is within our power, you know? So poets, this is maybe one reason why they have such bad reputations because they pompously speak for humanity. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, So yeah, you're saying Shakespeare does this too. Yeah. And it's for us all. The second thought that I had is also from Sumo Lyrica. I'm so sorry. No, don't apologize. Uh, That's a great book. He says in there, speaking of the speaker of the poem, he says, take him at his word. There is no other way. Um, (laughs) And he also says something like something along the lines of like, once you've spoken, you can't go back. You've given everything with your word and now you can't go back again because you've given speech to it. And so that takes me back to what you were saying before about how the person speaking these, these soliloquies, these poems, once they've said it all, their life isn't going to be the same after. And it wasn't the same before. Yeah, yeah. And just that the way Shakespeare writes, and I think one of the things that has made him so amazing is that you can take these poems at their word and there's no other way. You know what I mean? For example, okay, Hamlet's to be or not to be. You don't have to wonder at all what Hamlet is actually thinking you know when he's giving you these words you don't have to be like okay but what's really in your mind you know he gives you his entire mind his entire world in just those words and so i think if to be able to write a poem like that where you can contain that entire model of that entire world in just the words so that you don't have to be fishing around for anything else underneath or beside it just inspired about eight different thoughts um i love it it's okay yeah i don't like interpreting poems you probably know this about me i don't like uh, i think people we live in a society for in which for the past hundred years people don't read poems i think because they uh, are under the impression for whatever reason that poems contain secret messages that need to be decoded mm-hmm. no one used to believe this people used to read poetry and take it at face value and assumed that just with a basic education, they could appreciate and be pleased by what the poem offered. I still think this is true, right? Poems haven't changed. Shakespeare, when I read To Be or Not To Be or any of these soliloquies, I'm not looking for the hidden meaning, the true meaning. What we have are the words on the page and they're remarkably clear. That doesn't mean that they're easy or simple, and Hamlet will often contradict himself. So you never quite know what Hamlet thinks because Hamlet never quite knows what Hamlet thinks. But all of those contradictions and ambivalences are, as you say, there to be seen. That's not to say that you see them every time that you read. You can read carefully and you can read lazily, but there's nothing behind the poem. There is the poem. You know what I mean? There's nothing behind the poem. This is kind of what you mean, right? Yeah, totally. And it's so cool that Shakespeare wrote these poems and put them into people's voices as if, I mean, he rose our ability to see the power of language by making it, by making this language the way normal people communicate. Yeah, yeah. You know? And I think that's just really awesome. Harold Bloom actually connects to what you were saying. But. It does. <clears throat> it absolutely does. And it connects to the previous point that you made. Harold Bloom got a lot of flack for calling his book on Shakespeare the invention of the human. He has this very provocative thesis that Shakespeare invented the human. He's very 
emphatic that he does not mean this literally. He's not an idiot. He just means that Shakespeare showed us with such permanence and clarity how humans have always thought that now when we think about the way that humans think, we think about Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of crude summary of his point. Shakespeare encoded into these soliloquies so vividly what it means to be a thinking human that he wrote the book on thinking humans, Shakespeare did. The, the Alan Grossman point about you, this is what good poems do. Good poems start writing. Good poems don't write. You know what I'm saying. Good poems begin. They begin with a thought. My heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my, my sense. Once, once the poem has said that, that's the start of the poem. It can't go to a redo. So thought B has to be a natural outgrowth of thought A. And thought C has to be, thought C is dependent on thought B, right? Mm-hmm. Et cetera, et cetera, to the end of the poem. So this is, to use Frost's metaphor, a piece of ice on a hot stove rides its own melting. I think that's so gorgeous, yeah? Mm-hmm. So you don't know where the piece of ice will end up at the bottom of this, I guess it's like a slanted, slightly slanted stove, yeah? The ice is running down. But it will depend on the start of the journey, and you can't go back. So how do humans think? They think, and then they have a thought that's based on that thought, then they have a thought that's based on that thought, and they go in circles. Maybe they go in circles, or they go in kind of linear, semi-linear paths. Um, But as poets, we have to make sure that we are, A, surprising ourselves into new territory, and B, making sure that our the ends of our poems are authentic and surprising outgrowths to the beginning of our poems. I don't know. Maybe, I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is a dead no. end. No, no. I, I mean, the, this is the jailer's daughter, right? right? It's like, yeah, he could never love me. I'm base. You know, you, you have to start that way, but he could have had the jailer's daughter say, I watched the prisoner for a long time. And after, after doing that have concluded that he will love me. No, no, she talks. She doesn't know where this talking will lead her. But the talking makes her believe things. She literally talks herself into beliefs and opinions. And you can't go back on that talking. Once you say an idea, it's there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's out there. And it will affect future ideas. No, I think that's totally awesome. And I think in Shakespeare, that's brought so much more to the forefront because we're dealing with actual people's lives. And the words they speak are determining the outcome of their existence. And I think if we thought of our poems on that level of like intensity yeah. and importance, that it's like these words are dictating where this existence is going to wow. end up. You know what I mean? What a great place to end. This is never, I'm going to write this down for my own sake. Let's see if I can accurately paraphrase this and you will correct me. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm more sensitive than most to the pretension of the poet. And I have this, very anti-pretension reflex. And yeah, it's just a poem. We should be able to laugh at ourselves, but I still don't think we take poetry seriously enough. What would happen if we took it this seriously? King, King Richard II, what he says in that moment will affect how his life turns out. It won't. It's not just a pretty thing that you say or a clever thing that you say to get published in some magazine. What is at stake for King Richard? His life, his being, his existence. And what he says slash what he thinks, these are kind of versions of the same thing in some of these Shakespearean monologues, directly affect how his life will end up. And I think it's important too to realize not every poem is the same, just like 
Prospero, this wizard magician thing is not the same as the 15 year old girl. So they don't call for the same things, even though they're taken just as seriously as each other for the, for being a life. This is, this is excellent. What would happen if we, when we're writing a poem, convinced ourselves that the way my life will go in the future depends on what I say in this poem? Not just like, oh, it might get published somewhere or I might get into an MFA. No, no, no. I am creating who I am as a person right now because of the decisions I'm making on the level of the line in this poem. I mean, it's kind of slightly counterintuitive, but I think probably true. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow. I think we should take that literally. So much depends upon this poem that you're writing. Write poems as if your life depended on it, literally. Benjamin, exactly as you say, that doesn't mean that every poem has to begin, my heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense. This is a matter of life and death. You know, no. write poems about silly things that happen to you. Write poems that are slightly facetious or comedic or ironic or humorous or lighthearted. But you're absolutely right. Make sure that to the speaker in the moment of the poem, they are a turning point. Mm-hmm. It can just be about a red wheelbarrow if you want, but you ha- the speaker has to be convinced that so much depends upon this thing and this moment and this utterance. Because if the speaker doesn't feel like so much depends upon it, the reader won't, you know? It's a conclusion. I feel like, I'm not going to probably keep this in the recording because it's quite pompous, but maybe it's not pompous because if, uh, if this could only happen through dialogue, you know, we have arrived at the end of this conversation in a place that I never could have arriven, arriven, <laughs> arrived arrived at. I never could have arrived to this place on my own. You know what I mean? And it's the talking of you and me back and forth that has changed our thinking and then changed our subsequent talking and then changed our subsequent thinking. And now I'm thinking, yeah, I want to start writing poems as if my life depended on it in a kind of like literal way. Yeah. And I think to, to take a poem seriously enough to think, even if my life doesn't depend on it, your life poem is it, you know, this is your whole life and you're like giving it everything it is and everything it has. And so to take, that seriously as if it was your own life yeah to imagine god creating things as half-heartedly as sometimes i write an english poem (laughs) it's just (laughs) like that maybe is a little too far extreme but i just think like we should care about what we're creating and shakespeare obviously did you know we absolutely should see these people as just silly little poems he was writing he saw them as people let me say one last thing Hamlet uncut takes about four, four or four and a half hours to stage. He knew when he was writing this, Shakespeare must have known that this is not a stageable play, that it would have been cut for performance. He must have known this. And it always has been cut. It's very hard to get into an uncut live performance of, of Hamlet. The fact that he wrote it as is, is proof to me, just like what you said, Benjamin, he wanted it to have a life as an autonomous thing. He didn't care that on the stage it would have to be cut. He didn't care that maybe it couldn't live, you know, embodied in the way. No, on the page, as an idea, as a concept, as a sequence of words, it deserved this expansive, unbounded exploration. It deserved that. He was com- he was so committed to it that he said, I don't care about the constraints of the stage. I don't care about this. Yeah, imagine if we committed ourselves to each poem like that and said, you poem deserve everything that you deserve. You deserve everything. You know, maybe you're a haiku, maybe you're an epic. It doesn't matter. You deserve 
to last? How can I, how can I help you last? How can I make you last? And <laughs> I said that would be the last thing. Slightly pompous now to think that our poems will go out into the world and affect the lives of readers, but I think no great poet has achieved greatness and not assumed that their writing will be found and loved by people. If you tell yourself that no one will find or love your writing, I know Dickinson exists. I can hear people bringing in this counter argument. No, I still think she knew. She knew that one day, I think she knew, you know? So I think we need to like, oh, we owe it to people. We owe it to unborn people to put beautiful things into the world. That's awesome. And on that pompous note, but Perfect. thank you so much, Benjamin. Thank you so much. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Now for the writing prompt. To set up this writing prompt, I want you to think about how other artists in other art forms apprentice. Pianists, for example, have to spend hours and years learning scales and memorizing classical pieces. Visual artists have to copy the paintings of the masters. These long hours and years of imitation and simply rote copying is crucial to their development. Today's writing prompt is an exercise that I hope will help you start to think about your apprenticeship in literature in a similar way, as a way to kind of develop muscle memory. So for this prompt, take your favorite soliloquy and use its syntax and grammar and metrical structure as a scaffolding for your own draft. Use your own content, of course, so change the topic and change the words, but keep the grammar and the sentence structure, keep the enjambments, keep the sejuras, keep the punctuation as closely as you can. It might help if you listened to the previous podcast in which I run through in some detail some of the, some of the formal aspects of Shakespearean blank verse. But in short, where Shakespeare pauses midline, you pause. Where he enjams, you enjam. Make your sentences as long as his or as short as his. Make your map your content onto his syntactic scaffolding as closely as you can. You might not be able to do this one for one, but I want you to try. Like I said, the purpose of this exercise isn't necessarily to, to get a draft of your own out, although that might happen. I think primarily the goal is just to convince you that this exercise is worth repeating over and over and over again as a way to kind of develop muscle memory and learn how poems are put together. It might, just as a side benefit, also help you create a draft of a poem to work on, to take in whatever direction the draft invites you to take it. But for now, just focus on making your brushstrokes as close to Shakespeare's as you can, or making your fingers move on the keyboard as closely as that recording that you're listening to does. Of course, Shakespeare has been the subject of many, many poems of adoration throughout the centuries. One of my favorites is this poem by Matthew Arnold, called simply Shakespeare. Others abide our question. Thou art free. We ask and ask. Thou smilest and art still, out-topping knowledge. For the loftiest hill, who to the stars uncrowns his majesty, planting his steadfast footsteps in the sea? making the heaven of heavens his dwelling place, spares but the cloudy border of his base till the foiled searching of mortality. And thou, who didst the stars and sunbeams know, self-schooled, self-scanned, self-honored, self-secure, 
didst tread on earth unguessed at, better so. All pains the immortal spirit must endure, all weakness which impairs, all griefs which bow, find their sole speech in that victorious brow. That's it for now. I hope you enjoyed this chat about Shakespeare. I hope that you will try some of these uh, imitation exercises and that you will, of course, keep reading and keep writing and never forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer.